Good evening, everyone. Let's, let's pray together uh, just now. Father, uh, here we are. For some of us, here we are again. Lord, we pray as we uh, study and read and preach your written word, may we meet with your living word tonight. Jesus said you study these scriptures because you think you'll find eternal life in them, and yet these scriptures are speaking about me. Pray, Lord Jesus, you'd pour your Holy Spirit out on us tonight that as we read your word, it would burn within us and our hearts would burn as though you were right here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, good evening, folks. Uh, I want to show you a, a picture on the screen. I'm hoping this will work out. There he is. This is Gollum. And Gollum sometimes likes to go to Forestside on a Saturday morning for a coffee. And whenever Gollum goes to Forestside on a Saturday morning for a coffee, his favorite shop in the whole center is H. Samuel, the jeweler. There's a photograph of Gollum outside H. Samuel, the jeweler, weeping with joy at what he sees in the cabinet. Gollum is a character from the imagination of a man called J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien depicts this character who has an unhealthy obsession with a shiny ring. And the story goes that whenever Gollum first encountered the ring, he was torn between his love for the ring and his desire to be free from the ring. But Bilbo Baggins took the ring from him, and when it was taken from him, he pursued the ring for the rest of his natural life. And his heart and his imagination and his desire all wrapped themselves around this tiny, shiny object, and Gollum became a gaunt, emaciated shadow. His relationships spoiled, his soul shriveled up, his future and his destiny evaporated. His whole life turned inward upon itself until there was literally nothing of him left. J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian, and his stories are rich with biblical truth and Christian truth. And the character is, uh, I guess exaggerated and a little bit silly and a bit comedic, but the character is teaching us something about desire. J.R.R. Tolkien is teaching us that we not only consume the things that we desire, but in another sense, the things that we desire can and will consume us. We live in a world of almost unlimited choice and freedom, and at the same time, we find ourselves imprisoned and restricted by our desires. And people routinely feel as they are swimming in freedom and in choice, they feel like they're splashing around in the shallow end of their soul. We love things 
and at the same time, we want to be free from our things. I was in Canada this summer teaching the Bible to a bunch of teenagers with my sister, Rue, and on the first day that we arrived in Canada, Rue lost her mobile phone, and uh, we scarred every inch of the campsite for this mobile phone. Sarah remembers it. And uh, we covered, we retraced every step that she had taken. We could not find this mobile phone. And her response to losing the phone was really interesting because on the one hand, she was panic-stricken and there was fear and anxiety. And on the other hand, there was this remarkable feeling of joy and release, you know, kind of Smeagol is free sort of thing. (laughs) Don't don't tell her I compared her to Gollum. Um, But the relationship with the phone was complicated. She loved it and it was important to her and at the same time, she longed to be free of it. It was a bit of a divine confiscation. It was actually returned to her and found almost miraculously on the last day of camp. And again, when she got it back, there was this mixed response, initially relief and triumph and joy and like, yes, thank goodness, my phone. And then about a minute later, like actual sorrow and disappointment and anxiety and that feeling of I really, really enjoyed a week without that wrapped around my hand. We love things, and at the same time, we sometimes want to be free from them. Uh, I remember a prisoner once who uh, did an alpha, and as he was doing alpha, we were talking about the doctrine of original sin, as you do. And this prisoner told uh, somebody who was leading the course, you know, I don't believe in the doctrine of original sin. But a minute later, the same prisoner was... um, pontificating in a, in a group discussion about how everyone is an addict. He said, you know, people, people look at me and they brand me an addict. Let me tell you something. Everyone is an addict. And he's right. You see, the doctrine of original sin could be called the doctrine of universal addiction. We all have desires that get disordered and things that we love that are elevated beyond the value they should have to the point where each one of us is addicted to something. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced a desire that has been difficult to control or that you find after time a little bit imprisoning or restricting? What is your precious? Tolkien is saying that we need to be aware of our desires. We need to listen to our desires. We need to bring our desires that get disordered to God so he can recalibrate them by his Holy Spirit. And we need to curate our desires every day with practices from the way of Jesus that teach us to desire things in the right order and with the right priority. Otherwise, a little bit like Gollum, our desires get out of control and they can suffocate us. We've been in a a series on uh, the Ten Commandments, and the story goes like this. Israel finds themselves positionally free. They have escaped from slavery in Egypt. They've come across the Red Sea. God has destroyed Pharaoh and the pursuing army, and they find themselves positionally in freedom. But now God is teaching them how to live as free people, how to express and enjoy freedom. And as they enjoy their freedom and they flourish, how to invite others into the same joy and blessing that God has for them. God gives them 613 laws by way of instruction, and an integral part of those 613 laws 
uh, are what is, what is known as the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. And it's like God's vision for the good life. That's what the Ten Commandments are, a vision from God of the good life. And we've arrived at number 10. So if you have managed to collect all 10 along the way, you've been doing very well. And you should probably get a bookmark or a prize, but you don't. Um, this is number 10. Let, let me read it to you, or you, you can have a look there on the screen. It says this, Exodus 20, verse 17. Very short reading from the Bible tonight. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's the 10th commandment. It's an invitation to live in the lightness of gratitude and not in the heaviness of greed. It's an invitation to live in the lightness of contentment and not in the heaviness of consumption. As we unpack this commandment tonight, this invitation to uh, living lightly and living freely, I want to say a few things really quickly as we get started about reading Old Testament law. Because reading Old Testament law is difficult, and reading Paul in the New Testament talking about Old Testament law is difficult as well. If you've been part of a CBE group at any stage, like my CBE group, which has been meeting for four years, we've talked more about the law than anything else, because we have so many questions that we don't have answers to. And there are questions tonight that I can't answer for lack of time, and questions I can't answer for lack of having an answer. But three things, really quickly, that I think are helpful when we read Old Testament Law. The first thing is this um, look for a guiding principle or a deeper value. So, when you read a commandment like this, um, the problem is that when we think about law in our modern society, we think about a text, and the text itself is the source of authority and is the law. So, if you want to build a fence in your garden and you want to know how high can I build my fence, you would think to yourself, well, there's probably a law out there somewhere. There's a piece of text, and I could point to it, and the text itself is the authority. It is the law. It will tell me how high I can build my fence. The difference with Old Testament law is that the text itself here that says, do not covet your neighbor's house, that is an illustration or an application of a deeper value or a guiding principle. And it's that deeper value or guiding principle where we find the true authority of the law. I hope that makes some sense. Let me illustrate it. Uh, Owen, can we switch to the other reading for a moment from Romans? Um, This is Romans 13, and I just want to show this to you because it talks about this 10th commandment. It says, let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, and therefore love is a fulfillment of the law. It's saying that there is a deeper value and a guiding principle of which the commandment is an illustration or an application in that moment. And by the Holy Spirit, we search for that deeper value and we find in it an authority to live by. Second thing, um, it says this, remember who it comes from. When we think of law, we think of cold, hard law that's disembodied, 
This is different. This is law coming from a father who has redeemed them by his sheer mercy and who they know and trust and love and who always has their best interests and their freedom and their flourishing at heart. So even when the law reads in a way that is prohibitive, we need to remember who it comes from. The third thing is read it as an invitation. The biggest problem in the Old Testament was that the law had the power to describe the good life, but not the power to produce it. Say that again. The biggest problem with Old Testament law is that it has the power to describe the good life, but it does not have the power to produce it. When the Holy Spirit lives in you, the Holy Spirit has the power to show you the way of the good life and to to walk in freedom, and he also has the power to put that into practice in your life and to produce it in your life. And so we read these commandments and we are reading an invitation from God to walk in ever deeper freedom and flourishing as his people and his children. So that's how we should read it. So let's have a look at it again, maybe. Um, Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. There's a few things about the commandment that are unique. All the other commandments legislate behavior. So in other words, if you broke any of the other commandments, somebody else could see that you had broken it. This is a commandment that legislates the hidden realms of the heart and the imagination. You could break this to your heart's content all day long, and nobody else would necessarily need to see or know that you were doing it, which makes that a little bit different. It's personal in that it affects your relationship with God, and it's also relational. This is about your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, uh, your neighbor's donkey or ox or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It affects our relationship with each other. It's richly contextual because they're about to step into the promised land and God's about to give them a plot and a garden and a place to grow crops and somewhere to live and a house. And God is saying, when you receive these as good gifts, as as my uh, compassion and love for you, having brought you out of slavery, live in gratitude. Don't peer over the wall at your neighbor's plot and think, how could I get my hands on that one? as well. It's contextual, but it's also universal. We find a a rich application for this in our lives today. Finally, God's heart in this commandment is that his people would live in generosity, that they would live in gratitude, and most of all, that they would live in contentment with what they have and with who they are. Today in the Uh, society that we are part of, we live with a contentment crisis. Uh, Last year in the United Kingdom, 26.2 billion pounds in one year was spent on advertising. The definition of advertising is uh, to create an insatiable desire for things that we do not need. You will never see an advert for oxygen or for water from the tap or for sleep because we know by instinct that we need those things. So advertising, uh, by its very nature and definition, is to create an insatiable desire for things that we don't actually need. And our society every day faces this tidal wave of imagery and of messaging that is manipulating desire and imagination. These guys are, are paying millions of pounds to psychologists who understand our imagination and our desire better than we do ourselves. And what it has created uh, is a paradox of horror. You see, let me ask you another question. 
could there be a direct correlation between our consistent and furious consumption and the gnawing emptiness in the soul of our society? There is a hopelessness that at the same time as 26.2 billion is spent on driving our desire towards things, there is a hopelessness that at the same time is driving people into therapy. We have non-stop access to social media. We are raising a generation who are using their phones five and six, seven hours of screen time a day, a trillion lines of connection, and we've never felt so isolated and alone and inadequate. Tim Jackson, I don't know who he was, but this is what he said. He said, we are regularly persuaded to spend money we don't have on things we don't need to create impressions that won't last on people we don't care about. (laughs) Sounds like quite an optimistic, hope-filled guy. Um, He said, (laughs) we're regularly persuaded to spend money we don't have on things we don't need to create impressions that won't last on people we don't care about. I dare you, if you're in Victoria Square over Christmas doing some Christmas shopping, just to take someone aside and whisper that in their ear. Or as you're standing in the queue in House of Fraser, just announce that to everybody else who's standing in the queue and then whistle a Christmas tune to yourself. Um, Millions and millions and millions of hours are spent every year consuming the highlight reels of other people's lives, and it's not even their real life, it's their carefully and meticulously crafted image on social media, and we compare ourselves to them over and over again, and we combine that with a relentless rhythm of Western consumption, and we have ended up with nothing but dissatisfaction, frustration, and discontent. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Every one of us in the room tonight, from a global perspective, we have an abundance of possessions. Remember, Johnny, remember, your life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. People and purpose in the kingdom are much more important than things. How, uh, as a church, do we live as a light and a blessing as a non-anxious presence, as a contented presence in the midst of that kind of society? How do we invite people into flourishing and into contentment and into freedom when they're being consumed by their own desires? What would the way of contentment look like for us? So here we are, three things that I I think describe the way of contentment. Um, Gratitude, generosity, and a, a regenerated imagination. Let me start with gratitude. Sometimes the Bible is difficult to understand. Sometimes it's not. Let me give you two examples. Philippians 2.12, do everything without complaining. (laughs) That's what the Bible says. Very difficult uh, to do, not hard to understand. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, give thanks in all circumstances. Be continually and perpetually thankful. That is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, Most of the time, we have an extraordinary number of things to be thankful for. And also, most of the time, genuine felt gratitude in our cultural ecosystem and environment is very, very difficult. It's very difficult. Uh, Why is that? Because we have what's called silver medal syndrome. A group of Olympic medal winners were surveyed one year and asked about how happy they were with their placing and how satisfied they were with their medal. The first result won't surprise you at all. The happiest group among the medal winners were the gold medal winners. They'd hit the jackpot. They were happy, completely satisfied. 
The next result may surprise you. The second most happy uh, group of medalists were the bronze medal winners. And bringing up the rear, the last uh, placed group and the least happy, the silver medal winners. Why is that? And the results were crystal clear. It's because bronze medal winners focus on what they have. And uh, they think to themselves, well, I almost didn't make the podium. You know, I, I was nearly here without a medal at all, and I am so profoundly grateful for what I do have. Silver medalists, they look up, and they think to themselves, somebody else got the gold medal, and I don't want this one. And the problem is that we live in a society and a culture where we are consistently programmed to look up. Uh, our gaze is directed upwards constantly. We spend hours on social media looking at other people's carefully curated images. Uh, and then we also are conditioned by advertising to have this narrative in our lives that is forever about what I could have and I should have and I don't yet have. We spend all of our time looking up and at the same time we're insulated from a global perspective. Let me give you a global perspective just for two minutes tonight. If I took the world, 7.8 billion people, and I represented that as 100 people in a village. So if the world was represented as 100 people, how many of them would have any form of education beyond high school? The answer is seven. Seven. If you're sitting here tonight and you have any form of education, Gary, Gary Ball's not here, he's working out of his cycling proficiency certificate counts. Um, if you have any form of education beyond high school tonight, you're in the top 7% of the most educated people in the world. Seven people, as the same number, have a computer. This is really interesting. 30 people in a global village of 100 would have enough to eat all the time. So that's us. Uh, 50 people, half are sometimes hungry, 19 are badly undernourished, and one is dying of starvation. And you might think, well, when I read it, I thought, one, that's not too bad. That one represents 75 million people. 20 of them have no electricity, nine have drinking water that is killing them. And this, is, this, this last one really gripped me. Uh, if the world was 100 people, 48 of them live on less than £1.75 a day. We are endlessly conditioned to look up and it's producing discontent in our hearts. A global perspective smashes our silver medal syndrome. This summer, we visited a school in Uganda, which was uh, rather hilariously called Ulster Farmers Primary School. You think they could have come up with a Ugandan name? We were greeted at the, at the gate by all these children singing, this is Ulster, this is Ulster. I thought, no, it's not, it's Western Uganda. But... Fine. Um, Ulster Farmers Primary School. This is the headmaster and also the pastor of the local church, Edison Taremwa. Fantastic guy. We loved him. Um, without breaking confidentiality or giving anything away, we spent a week uh, befriending this guy, getting to know him, getting to love him. He was full of joy. He was a brilliant leader. He was just the most amazing guy. And on, on one of our last days at the school, we discovered what his annual budget was. He had 400 pupils, 14 teachers. He couldn't make his annual budget and the teachers weren't being paid. His annual budget was around half of the monthly income in my household. Statistics have a certain transformative effect on our hearts, but it's very, very, very small. 
But when you walk with somebody in those circumstances, you can't help but be transformed. Towards the end of the week, we brought in some balloons. There's Marty, the balloon man, Naomi, the balloon lady, and it was a remarkable day. There was so much gratitude and joy and life in the room. We give every kid a balloon, and Trevor Robinson like, just blew up a thousand balloons and passed out in the corner. And uh, we were, <laughs> were distributing all these balloons, and the problem was when you've got to blow up a thousand balloons, you can't really be doing like a dog and then the Eiffel Tower and then a mobile phone, you know, so we just had to give everyone a sword. So we gave 450 Ugandan primary school children a sword, and then we sent them out into the playground at break time, and it was like the Battle of Hastings, okay? Bodies strewn everywhere, children lancing each other, you know? I thought, maybe this is encouraging violence. Um, every child got a sword. There was so much gratitude and joy and life. And in the weirdest way, you're going to think I'm so strange, but my mind actually turned to Disneyland Paris. Because I've been to Disneyland on a number of occasions, and every time I go to Disneyland, I, uh, I marvel at how many children I see that are right in the middle of a bitter, angry, full-blown, bad-tempered strop at Disneyland. There is something about our world, there is, there is something about our society that has it wrong when children who go to Disneyland can throw a bad-tempered strop and other children who are given a sword balloon that bursts in five minutes, and their wee faces light up like you've never seen gratitude. I want to read you a poem. There was a Presbyterian minister, Steve Stockman, was out there in the summer, and uh, he wrote this poem, um, and I find it hard to read, but I'm going to read it. He said this uh, about the same children. He gave them a pencil sharpener, by the way, so that would explain it. He said, You could carry the bus with your joyous effervescence, Your energetic innocence, you lift me high. You could carry the bus with your happiness so contagious, your thankfulness beautifully outrageous, you lift us high. When you don't have nothing, then anything is something. A little thing is everything. It makes your eyes sing. It makes your eyes sing. Oh, how it makes your eyes sing. Just a pencil sharpener. You were Christmas Day beaming, You were Disney World gleaming, a tear in my eye. Just a pencil sharpener. A glowing gasp of utter glee, like the purest gratitude must be with a tear in my eye. We have lost something with all that we have. That appreciative smile, that enraptured laugh, I can't help thinking how clever Jesus' words, the one of losing souls and gaining worlds, because when you don't have nothing, then anything is something. A little thing is everything. It makes your eyes sing. It makes your eyes sing. Oh, how it makes your eyes sing. This summer, I was shocked out of my silver medal syndrome. The way of contentment begins with gratitude, and it continues with generosity. I'm going to tell you another story from the same trip. We were in church on Sunday morning, and uh, Edison was the pastor. It was a strange day, believe me. We came in, rows and rows and rows of little uh, kids sitting on the floor, the community sitting on these broken-down plastic seats that are hundreds of years old, and just one massive throne. Like, if you've seen the uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, like the thrones in Care Paravel, okay? And I came in, and there's this massive golden throne, and I thought, oh, that must be where Edison sits. And I'd been invited to speak, and then it suddenly struck me. (laughs) I've got to sit in that throne. It was so strange and humbling 
and wonderful all at the same time. But we're in this little church, and the teachers aren't paid, the school's dilapidated, the soil's too dry to grow anything in. And halfway through the service, Edison explains that the community are really passionate about giving, and they would like to take up an offering for us. And Naomi and I just looked at each other in horror. And we thought the only thing worse than receiving this would be to give it back. Uh, Suddenly all of these gifts started to come to the front. Ugandan shillings, probably a week's earnings, a month's earnings, fruit and vegetables, enough to feed a family. That goes into the pot as well. Little pieces of craft that could be sold at the market. That goes into the pot. And then this one lady comes uh, on on her own. And she's carrying this beautiful uh, Western um, American-looking water bottle that would probably be 15 or 20 quid over here. And there was this look in her eye that has haunted me from that day. And we realized collectively very quickly that this lady was about to put the most valuable possession that she had in the offering basket. And you just, nothing could have prepared my heart really for seeing that. And yet here's the funny thing. I mean, we, we, we took the water bottle, we gave it to Trevor. He was working outside and, you know, we emphasized how hot and sweaty Trevor is and how much he appreciated the water bottle. And it was all really beautiful, their generosity. But, um, do you know, something something so funny our consumption is making us empty and bored and her reckless and radical gift made her joyful and full see that's the upside down kingdom of god and the kingdom of god was so alive in her generosity and release and radical generosity was so alive in her that she would have given up her most valuable possession for the greater priority of loving and blessing others. And that, in the upside-down kingdom, is the way of contentment. What about this? I just think this uh, sums it up. James 2, 5 says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised to those that he loves? What if God's good design was this? That the rich would save the poor from their poverty and that the poor would save us from our suffocating riches. I want to say as well that there is absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, there is everything right about wealth generation. I know some people in my life and through work who are like obscenely wealthy And they save it, they invest it, they gain it by integrity, and they give it away. And their mind and their heart and their soul are caught up in kingdom vision and values. And it is wonderful. There's everything right about wealth generation. So it's not about, it's not that there's anything better or holier about being poor. It's just that maybe wealth can save the poor from poverty, but maybe we need saving more from our suffocating riches and they have the kingdom in their midst. Generosity is the pathway to contentment. Let me finish with uh, the last one here, a regenerated imagination. Um, I just want to read a little extract from a book by uh, Darren Whitehead and John Tyson called Rumors of God. Um, And it's about are imaginations that have been hijacked by the uh, advertisers who want to manipulate our desire towards things. I think this is amazing. He says this, what, what do our dreams and our daydreams and our wandering minds and our imaginative scenarios drift 
towards when we are idle in the car. The chances are, if we're brutally honest, it's more money or financial stability or a comfortable living environment or a new kitchen or a new car. Good friends, energetic, encouraging, spontaneous, and fun. Maybe a change in our appearance, more height, leanness, athleticism, a partner, good-looking, well-educated, high-functioning kids, maybe well-mannered kids who outperform your friends' kids in school, maybe fame, maybe influence, maybe changing the world in some way for the greater good. And there is nothing, and I say nothing, inherently wrong with any of that. Only this, that it's precisely the same as non-Christians. Should our dreams not be fueled by a different story? We have been programmed to want certain things, to covet them, and to spend our lives a wee bit like Gollum, chasing after them. What if comfort is not the way to contentment? What if consumption is not the way to contentment? What if comfort and consumption bring about a kind of soul-numbing, spiritual, life-draining boredom and emptiness? And then, ironically, we go on social media to look at the spiritually adventurous lives and giftings and callings of all of these other people who we'd like to be like. And really, it's just more comparison and consumption. What if contentment was a byproduct of brokenheartedness? What if embracing life to the full means unspeakable joy? but also means to carry the broken heart of God, to chase kingdom dreams, to go on a spiritual adventure, to be saved from beige, and to be made fully alive. I want to tell you a story which uh, my wife has warned me against and I've used before, but I just want to tell you because it's possibly one of my favorite stories of all time. If you're thinking to yourself, I hate this story, well, that's fine. A few years ago at London Zoo, their prize gorilla, his name was Kumbuka, escaped. This was a code red scenario. This should never, ever, ever happen. The zookeeper is in full-blown panic. All of the staff are gathered together having an emergency meeting. What the heck are we going to do? The prize gorilla, Kumbuka, has escaped London Zoo. Look it up on the internet when you go home. Who do you call? Do you call the police? Do you call the fire brigade? Do you call Gareth? How do you recapture a prize gorilla like Kumbuka? Every one of them probably saw in their mind's eye this extraordinary monkey terrorizing people on the streets of London, throwing bodies left, right, and center, climbing the Tower of London and swinging across the Buckingham Palace, abducting the Queen and tossing her into the gardens. After a couple of hours looking for Kumbuka, they gave up, and somebody had this genius idea that he might be in the most unlikely place. They came back to his enclosure, opened the zookeeper's office, and found Kumbuka sitting in the zookeeper's office chair, reclining, having opened the fridge, stolen four and a half liters of undiluted Ribena, and drunk the whole lot. (laughs) Kumbuka passed out in a sugar-induced coma, okay? What if our disordered desire and our coveting of things and our problems with consumption and the way our desires consume us, 
What if that was related to gratitude? It's related to generosity, but more than anything else, it's actually related to boredom in our imagination. You see, Galatians says that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. My temptation all the time is to live like Kumbuka, to be set free, to be positionally free, and to spend my life wallowing in cheap entertainment and pleasure and just mind-numbing, soul-draining stuff. What if God is stirring in us and has been stirring in us over the last nine or ten weeks? Dreams for the kingdom, a kind of King Kong Christianity rather than a Kumbuka Christianity. Some kind of spiritual adventure, some reawakening of new desires within us that weren't there before, or even just a profound sense of dissatisfaction that says there's got to be more to the rest of my life than these patterns that I currently live in. When God says, I invite you to live in contentment, he's inviting us to a life of gratitude. He's inviting us to a life of radical generosity. And he wants, by his Holy Spirit, to regenerate our imagination and our dreams and orient them around his kingdom. Let me pray. Father, uh, I want to uh, pray tonight, Lord, that as we, as we finish this series looking at an invitation to a free life and a flourishing life, uh, God, would you just come now in this moment by your Holy Spirit and speak to us? And Lord, just take some of the things that you've been saying to us over the last half hour and God, help us to step out in response to them. Father, I pray you'll take uh, words of mine that have been self-indulgent and allow them to drift away and take words of mine that are a word from you in season and set them deep in the soil of our hearts that they would come alive, that they would grow and that they would bear fruit. Um, Father, we, we invite you now to lead us in response. We invite you to minister to us and we offer you our hearts We pray, Lord, that you would do a beautiful work in them. In Jesus' name, amen.